you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we will be at least a little bit and kind of. And I say that because we're going to chase a rabbit trail today. Some of you know that uh, Pastor John and Chad and I just got back from a trip on the Appalachian Trail. I did 30 uh, miles by myself and then over two days and then joined them for 36 more over three days. And when you're on the Appalachian Trail, sometimes you have to take a side trail to get water or something like that. So it's not something you necessarily want to do. It adds mileage or it may be like all downhill and you know I've got to come back up that. But I've got to get water because there's not going to be water for five more miles. And so I have to go get it. I have to take this side trail so that I can complete the overall main trail. And that's kind of what we have going this morning when we come to First Timothy chapter 6. We've got a side trail that we need to take so that we can better complete the overall trail, not just of this book, but of understanding the Bible in, in, in full. Because the first two verses of First Timothy chapter 6, they, they have a lot to say to us about how we are to relate to our employers, and if we are the employer, how we are to relate to our employees, but we're going to need to wait a week to talk about that, so there's your you know, preview for next week, because this week we've got to take this rabbit trail and deal with something that is often used by many people as an attempt to undermine and discredit Christianity and the Bible. And that's the issue of slavery, which is the context of these first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me read them to you again. Would all who are under a yoke as bondservants, okay, the Greek word there's doulos, literally means slave. Would all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters worthy of all honor? so that the name of God in the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters, that is Christian masters, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." And so this morning, we're going to chase this rabbit of slavery, and I'm going to be leaning on, heavily on the works of John Woodhouse and John Mark Reynolds and Matt Chandler, who were helpful in research and putting this together. So let's chase this rabbit and begin, again, by talking about kind of what happens a lot of times. People just use this issue of slavery to try to undermine and discredit the Bible. And so they'll go, the Bible cannot, I mean, in the Bible, God condones slavery. Therefore, you cannot trust the Bible as truth because God condones slavery. Okay, that's the claim that they make. The problem with that is that no one is willing, most people, are not, un, are, are not willing to do the hard work to see if that conclusion, that God condones slavery, is actually true. And I say conclusion on purpose because it is a fact. Being honest with you about the Bible. We need to be honest about what the Bible says and what the Bible does not say. 
being honest with you, I say conclusion because it is a fact that nowhere in Scripture is slavery, slavery universally and explicitly condemned. Okay, just being honest with the Bible here. But listen very, very carefully. The lack of a universal condemnation does not therefore imply some sort of universal tacit approval by God of slavery. Like, not even close. But people, by and large, don't want to do the hard work of seeing what the Bible says in totality about slavery. And so they make their claim, hear what they want to hear, lob their grenades, and try to therefore discredit the Bible as just a cultural relic of a bygone primitive era that thus has no bearing on life today. And so just to give you a more specific way that that this goes down, a lot of times people will go and they'll grab Exodus 21. They'll rip that completely out of context. They'll rip Leviticus 22 completely out of context, which are, being honest with you, a little bit difficult to read. A little bit shocking. But they'll rip them completely out of context and rip them out of the narrative of the Bible and then build up an argument against the Bible from those texts alone. And so basically, it would be like me going to the Lord of the Rings, the whole thing, all right, all three books, this one big book, going to the Lord of the Rings and just, you know, pulling out one little section and be like, man, Sauron is amazing. He's so awesome. And Frodo and Sam are just evil little punks, all right, just ripping that completely out of the context, not understanding the totality of the story. Or I could do it with Harry Potter and be like, man, Voldemort's the bomb. He is awesome. And Harry Potter is just an evil little guy. If I just go to one place, just one place and pull that out and just represent everything based upon that one little place, not knowing what's going on in the rest of the story, not knowing what's going on before, not knowing what's going on afterwards, how it began, how it ended, just going this little chunk right here in the middle is terrible, therefore the whole thing is garbage. Okay, that's horrible logic and not anywhere close to intellectual honesty. But that's what some folks will do. And there are tons of people who would then, you know, just uh, eat that up on Discovery Channel or something like that. And maybe even some folks in here who have been persuaded that maybe that's a reason not to trust the Bible. Rather than doing, again, the hard work to see what does the Bible actually say about slavery. And... Even if we're talking apples to apples as it pertains to slavery. Because when we, as Americans, think of slavery, we just by default, conditioned by our culture, our heritage, think of the American South. A slavery where predominantly Africans were brutally abducted in Africa, slammed into unimaginable quarters in the bottom of a ship. For weeks on end, many died. And if they didn't die, they were stripped naked, put on an auction block, and sold to the highest bidder. Forced to work cotton fields until the day they die, oftentimes in barbaric cruelty. And so before I go any further in all this, let me be clear on this. Though there's not an explicit, clear condemnation of all forms of slavery in Scripture, there is an explicit 
universal condemnation of that form of slavery that was pressed out by European colonialism and that was practiced in America, particularly in the South. That form of slavery is clearly condemned in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. I'll throw some verses at you in a few minutes on that. Okay, but that form completely, absolutely condemned in the Bible as sin, even though many idiot Southern preachers try to preach otherwise. But my whole point in this is that when we hear the word slavery, we automatically then default think of American slavery, right? Some of that culminated in the Civil War. But to understand the Bible, we have got to recognize its historical context and not read into it our context, not read into it something that it is not addressing. Because it's talking about a completely different form of slavery. When Paul speaks of slavery here, when Moses and others speak of slavery, they are not speaking of the horrid, depraved, evil wickedness that was colonial and antebellum slavery. They're speaking of a slavery that is practiced in the ancient Near East and in the New Testament as practiced in the Roman Empire thousands of years before America ever was a thought of anyone's mind. And it was a slavery that was more dissimilar than similar to American slavery. I mean, nobody in the world, in the modern world, should be a slave. But American slavery was a historically unique, toxic, and wicked form of slavery. And so we need to dissect these. We need to demarcate these. We need to differentiate these and understand them. Because we are not talking apples and apples here. Apples and oranges is what we're talking So American slavery, the current sex slave industry was and is 100% condemned in Scripture as sin. But Roman slavery was far, far more complex. But still, even within that, Christianity laid the foundation for the eradication of all forms of slavery, even without a universal condemnation of it in Scripture that I could proof text for you. In fact, it laid the foundation of the eradication so much so that everywhere that Christianity spread, slavery came to an end eventually. Everywhere. All right, but I want to make sure we understand these differences so that as we get into this next week, and as you're just reading the Bible in total, you don't confuse what Paul's talking about in this text, American slavery and ancient slavery. So let's name some differences. All right, let's, let's just go through these differences, chase this rabbit trail, make sure we understand that so we can better read the Bible. So difference number one. The first difference I want to highlight for you is that American slavery was based completely upon race. That is not the case in the ancient Near East or Rome where anybody could be a slave, right? But in America, it was all about race. In fact, American slavery was dependent upon oppressive racism, where you view one class of people based upon the melatonin in their skin as inferior to another group of people. So American slavery is completely built off of the sin of racism, whereas ancient slavery was based off of personal economics and national warfare. Personal economics and national warfare. And so 200 years ago, if you're walking around in the South and you see a black man, he is a slave. Why? Well, you know that because he's black. But that's not the case in Rome. 
In Rome, anybody, given the right or, or rather wrong circumstances, anybody could be a slave. Which means that sometimes a slave owner had a slave who was completely superior to him in every other form of measurement that the world would throw on them. Economically, financially, educationally, socially. There are multiple stories about Greek slaves training Roman senators. Or in the Bible, Joseph is a slave in Egypt and he becomes second in command. Still a slave though, but he's second in command. Or Daniel in Babylon, second in command, still a slave though. And so you have slaves basically running countries in the ancient Near East, owning land, having cash, having wealth, even sometimes owning other slaves themselves. That's not the case in the South, though, right? There weren't any slaves serving as vice president. And only very few were educated. Most slave owners feared education. No slaves had wealth. No slaves had power. No slaves owned land. But in the ancient Near East, it's completely opposite. Slaves were either already educated when they became slaves, or their owners would have them educated as a smart business move. And so in the South, all slaves were poor and over time began to identify themselves as an oppressed people very akin to Israel in Egypt with a heavy hand upon them as a group. But again, that's not the case in the ancient Near East where you might have some guy living in a governor's club mansion of the day, just living large and playing golf and just kicking back and just enjoying life. And he's got a neighbor who is wealthier than him, has a bigger house than him, far more in his bank account than him, but he's a slave. Because it's not based upon race, it's not based upon any of those type of things. It transcended all socioeconomic classes, all education levels, all ethnicities, not based on any of that. See how drastically different these things are. Make sure we understand Biblically, like context. Context is king as you read the Bible. Back then, you could not tell if someone was a slave based upon how they dressed, how they talked, what they looked like, what they owned or did not own. You could not tell if they were a slave because it wasn't based on any of that. And to get the scope of slavery in that day, it's estimated that up to half of the Roman population were slaves. So possibly up to 60 million people were slaves. And this was the status of the majority of professional workers. People like teachers, doctors, craftsmen. They were slaves. But it's not based on race. It's not based on anything like that. It's not based on socioeconomics. It's not based on education. And there's no vision of slaves as inferior. It was just unfortunate. Economically, maybe something bad happened nationally, maybe they had been conquered. So that's the first difference, okay? American slavery is based upon race. That's not the case in Rome or in the ancient Near East. All right? But let's talk about the second difference, and I kind of already alluded to it, and that's how you became a slave. In American slavery, you either were kidnapped from Africa, or if slaves had children or were forced to have children, they were automatically the property of the slave owner. Again, sinfully treated almost like livestock. 
But in Rome and in the ancient Near East, it's based on personal economics or national war, which meant, again, anybody could be a slave. And so economically, let's talk about economically. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery because, um, or, or, well, just by choice, all right? They, not, not, that, not dissimilar from indentured servitude. So they sold themselves into slavery to work off a debt. Or maybe the patriarch of the family were, was killed or was injured in such a way that he could no longer work. So one of the kids would strike a deal. I will be your slave if you will support my family. And so they were not kidnapped from one place and forced into labor. And then beyond that, people actually sometimes just voluntarily sold themselves into slavery hoping for a better life. Hoping that in slavery they would be educated, they would be trained, and that eventually they could get their freedom back and come out equipped with a marketable skill. But obviously that's not the way it worked in American slavery. It all began and continuously were furthered by abducting and capturing people from foreign lands and enslaving them. Taking a free man or a free woman who may be a king, who may be a queen, who may be a prince, have a wife, have a husband, have a family, or taking a child who has a mom, a dad, brothers, or sisters screaming, crying for his mom and his dad and just brutally ripping them away, slamming them into the hull of a ship where they are forced to live in hell. And if they survive that hell, they've got a much longer hell waiting for them when they get to the auction blocks. As I've said, that's expressly condemned in Scripture. Even in 1 Timothy that we've been studying. If you flip back a page in your Bible, or just listen to me read, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. It's just one place, but it's where we've been studying, so I'll show it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. All right, so he's about to give a list of sins. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And so just right there in the middle of that is this word enslavers, which means to take someone captive and enslave them, to sell him into slavery. Some of your translations, if you don't have the ESV, it may be Kidnappers, but kidnappers kind of lose its major thrust because it's not just kidnapping, it's then enslaving. Explicitly condemned in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Enslaving people like that. Even Exodus 21 that I said is a little bit wacky and hard to read. Even it says, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And then think through Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 with me for a moment. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. And so because they carried off, kidnapped and carried off people to sell as slaves to Edom, God used other nations to punish these countries at times to destroy them outright for their atrocities. But not only that. But actually, if you'll read through Israel's history, you will find that Israel became a haven of safety for runaway slaves. Became a haven for runaway slaves. So if you got out of Gaza, if you got out of Tyre and could get into Israel, then you would be safe. You would not be like re-enslaved, you would not be sent back, you would be free, you would be safe. And so you look across the scriptures and you see over and over and over these calls to care for the sojourner, care for the sojourners, care for... That's what they're talking about. And so think about just what this is laying the foundation for. Think with me about this. If you can get into Israel, you'll be safe. If you can get into my people, you'll be safe. If you can get into the kingdom of God, if you can get into my people, you will be safe. It's a shadow of what's to come. The freedom that is found in Christ for all slaves. Because we are all slaves in one way. Slaves to sin. The Bible tells us that over and over again. And so if we can come to Christ, if we can become part of His people through what Christ has done, not what we do, but what Christ has done in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, and by faith in what He's done, we are set free. We are no longer slaves. Our shackles are busted. We're free from sin. We're free from death. We're free from hell. We're free from wrath. We're free from ourselves. Freedom from our regrets. Freedom from our shame. Freedom from our guilt. If we just come to Jesus, there's freedom for anyone. And so, friend, if you are in here and you don't yet know Christ, and you are shackled by Sin, you're shackled by regret and guilt and shame. There's freedom in the arms of Jesus. Lay hold of it. Trust Him. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. His kindness is so great. Take Him. Trust Christ. That's what the nation of Israel was foreshadowing. And the Old Testament is full of these types of foreshadowings. And I'm hoping that I'll have the opportunity to tell you, uh, show you a lot of these foreshadowings because we're going to start, obviously we're almost done with 1 Timothy, we're going to start a new series in June when we wrap up 1 Timothy. And it's going to be called Prophets, Priests, and Kings. And we're going to go through First and Second Samuel and First and Second 
Kings. That's our next series. And so that's coming in June. Looking forward to walking through the, the monarchy and the, the kingdom of Israel uh, during that time and showing the shadows that it's pointing forward to us. But we'll do that in June. A couple more differences I want to highlight. Difference number three. All right, well, difference number one, it was completely based upon race in America, not that way in the ancient Near East. Difference number two is the way you became a slave, completely different. And now difference number three, in America, slavery was for life. Not the case in the ancient Near East or Rome. Like in Rome, thousands of slaves were freed every single year. And in the Hebrew culture, there were all kinds of exit ramps to help people get out of slavery and then stay out of slavery. To the point that uh, slaves in, uh, he, in, the, in the Hebrew culture, if you had a slave who was able to buy, accumulate enough wealth to buy his freedom, then it was the, and so he buys his freedom, all right, so he's no longer a slave. Now it's the responsibility of his former owner to help him establish himself so that he doesn't just go right back into slavery. And so in the Hebrew culture, there, there's also the year of Jubilee, right? So there's all these exit ramps, all these provisions made to help people get out of a life of slavery. So the difference between American slavery and ancient slavery is night and day. And so when we come to a text like this where Paul is speaking of slavery, we've got to be careful not to read in our culturally Um, framed understanding of slavery and instead understand historically the context that Paul is speaking into. Super important that we do that always. Be careful when reading Scripture to read our culture into these pages. Instead, that's eisegeting. That's reading into. We exegete. That's pull out of. So be careful when you're doing that. And so that's the, that's the way it was then. And, and it was super complex then. Because the church was made up of slaves and masters. Because again, there's no inferiority here. It's not based upon uh, racism or socioeconomic status or education levels or any of those things. It's not inferior, it's just unfortunate. It's unfortunate that you had a period in your life where you're personal economics were such that you had to sell yourself into slavery, or it's unfortunate that your nation was conquered by my nation, therefore you're a slave. Not in fear, just unfortunate. And so in the church, you've got this mixture of masters and slaves. And so think about how this could then go down. In in the church, you could have masters that in the church have their slaves as their pastor. And so Monday through Friday, you've got a slave calling his boss master. But then on Sunday, the slave is the master's pastor. And the master needs to submit to his pastor who is his slave. Because it's not based upon inferiority or any of these things. And there's a mixture in the church. And so it is far, 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 far more complex in Rome. 
And so Paul, in writing this letter to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, he doesn't outright reject the entire system. Instead, listen to me, he focuses on believers who are living within a specific governmental system. He focuses on how they are to live godly lives in the midst of an ungodly circumstance. And so it'd be sort of like if I wrote a letter to our Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea, all right, living underneath crushing oppression. And we're praying that God, even in the political games that are going on right now, that God is going to use even that to open that country back up and to bring relief to 300,000 brothers and sisters of ours who live in conditions we could not imagine. But anyhow, if I was going to write them a letter, all right, to the believers in North Korea, if I was going to send them a letter of encouragement on fighting the good fight, that's the theme of this letter, I'm not in my letter to them going to directly attack the system that they're living in in the letter. That, would, that wouldn't do anything for them. Instead, I'm going to talk about how they are to live in a godly manner in the midst of that ungodly governmental system and circumstances. But again, listen closely. My lack of attacking the system does not imply some sort of tacit approval of that system. It's just that's not the point of my letter to them. Similarly, that's not the point of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and particularly to his young protege or Padawan, Timothy. But even without giving an outright rejection of slavery, Paul still lays the framework for that rejection. Actually, by the time he wrote this letter to Timothy in the church of Ephesus, he had already really laid it down because he had written a whole lot of other letters. Uh, one of the letters that he had written, <clears throat> we call it Colossians. It was written to the church at Colossae, modern-day Turkey, a city in modern-day Turkey, and one of the things that's interesting about that letter is that one of the guys who brought that letter to the church at Colossae from Paul, who was in house arrest in Rome, one of the guys who brought the letter to the church at Colossae was a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave owned by a guy named Philemon, which is also a book in the Bible. So Onesimus is in Rome. He comes to Christ under the ministry of Paul and is hugely useful in the ministry to Paul. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae to carry the letter to the church there, all right, to the Colossian church. Philemon is a member of the Colossian church. Not only is he a member of the Colossian church, the church actually meets in his house. So, get the picture fully in mind here. You have Onesimus, a runaway slave from Philemon, bringing this letter back to the church, at, to the Colossian church, where it's going to be read publicly, and where it's going to be read publicly is in Philemon's house. But not only is he bringing a letter to the Colossians, he also, along with a guy named Tychicus, is bringing back a letter addressed specifically to Philemon from Paul. 
And in that book, in that short, short little letter, Paul does not expressly say, Hey, Philemon, let Onesimus go free. But without writing it that way, he says, Hey, Philemon, let Onesimus go free. Because he says, I'm not sending him back to you as a slave. I'm sending him back to you as a brother. He says, treat him like you would me. Hey, Philemon, let Onesimus go free. Don't, you're going to make Paul your slave? I mean, how are we to treat brothers and sisters in Christ? Even in here, like how we're, we're to outdo one another in showing honor to one, one another. We're to consider one another more important than we consider ourselves. And so you serve one another. That's what we do. We love one another. We help one another. We honor one another. We respect one another. We protect one another. That is the destruction of slavery. And so in the end, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that destroys all forms of slavery. That's why it ultimately disappears everywhere Christianity goes. Because on the one hand, we're all made in the image of God. We're all therefore worthy, all people, all people worthy of honor and dignity and respect and value. And then secondly, for all who believe, we're all brothers and sisters. And even as it says in Colossians, that book that Onesimus brought back, here, meaning the kingdom of God, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so even without an explicit condemnation of slavery, Paul rips the foundation out from underneath it. If you're thinking about your brother, if you're thinking about your sister, if you're treating the way that you want to be treated, you are never going to own another person. It just doesn't compute for the man or woman who's seeking to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. As, yes, I said it that way. And then, who's your neighbor? Jesus gives the example of who? The Good Samaritan, which is absolutely dripping with racial tension. He gives the example of the Good Samaritan. And so even without this express condemnation, the Bible still ultimately crushes the idea of all forms of slavery. It explicitly condemns American slavery, but it undermines all forms if you'll track through its pages. But again, most people don't want to do the hard work to try to understand what the Bible is saying and what the Bible is not saying and enter into the historical context of that time. But then even beyond the Bible, just historically... Who was it that led the charge for the abolition of slavery? Christians. You go to England, you've got Wilberforce. You've got John Newton, the former slave trader who gets saved, becomes a pastor, writes the hymn Amazing Grace, right? 
So when he says saved wretch like me, he's talking saved a racist slave trader like me. These Christian brothers in England lead the charge that leads to the abolition of slavery. In the U.S., you've got abolitionists, some of whom are crazy. I'm not going to deny that. But many of whom were simply spurred on by a commitment to the Word of God that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free. So you've got Lincoln, you've got so many others. All this, England and America, ended by Christians through years of pressing and fighting against it with much personal cost to people who would take that stand, much personal cost. And then culminating in America with over half a million deaths in the Civil War to see slavery ended. But look behind it all. What's, what's pressing and what's bubbling up underneath behind it all, making what, what's forming and fueling people's thoughts about this? It's the gospel. Behind it all is the gospel. It's the gospel and the preaching of the gospel that fueled and formed the fight that led to the ending of slavery. Then a hundred years later, it's the gospel that fueled and formed the fight that saw segregation come down. Dr. King was a Baptist pastor after all. And then today in our lives, it's my prayer that the gospel and the preaching of the gospel will continue to fuel and form the fight to bring an end to the venomous poison of racism that still lies often unseen and unrecognized in our hearts. But it's been Christians that have historically led this charge. And it's Christians that must continue this charge. But somebody's like, hold up, Joe, wait a minute. There were guys out there using the Bible to justify slavery. Yep. And there are televangelists on TV today Using the Bible to tell you with, a, with enough faith you can be rich and healthy and your kids can be rich and healthy. So just because you use the Bible does not mean you're doing so honestly. David Koresh used the Bible to convince people that he was Jesus and ladies needed to sleep with him. So just because you're using the Bible doesn't mean you're using the Bible honestly. But at Providence, we do want to use the Bible honestly. And so we've tackled a question this morning that's a bit awkward and a bit uncomfortable. Not unlike some of those side trails on the Appalachian Trail where you've got to go get water. But you've got to go get the water. And so today we needed to tackle this trail that was uncomfortable, that was a bit cumbersome because it's necessary. So that one, you understand that Paul, what Paul's talking about when he speaks of bond servants and masters. It's apples and oranges with American slavery. Don't read that in. Secondly, so that you understand that when grenades are lobbed against the Bible, if you will do the hard work of tracking down what the Bible says in totality, you will find every single time that those grenades are duds. And then thirdly, so that we might understand and live out the simple, simple truth of the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor 
as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. And we've been set free to love them and tell them of the freedom of Christ. That's why you're still here. If you are a Christian, you are still here to tell people about Jesus. If you are not a Christian, you are here to become one. I pray that you would today. Let's pray. Father, mark us as a people who are riddled through with your love. And we love like you love. And we pursue what you love. And we desire what you desire. Father, we pray even in this time, because we know there are more slaves on this planet right now than at perhaps any other time in history. And so, Father, we pray for the demise of the labor slave industry. We pray for the demise of the sex slave industry. I don't even want to use the word industry, God. Just wickedness. And we pray for the demise of the devaluing of humans that lies behind that. We pray, Father, that you would give us courage and steadfastness to face those things head on and even in ourselves face them head on if we look upon a woman and devalue that person and see that person as only an object convict us oh god And bring repentance that bears fruit into our lives. As it applies to this and anything else that may be going on in the lives of your people here in this room. Help us to love you. Not with some of our heart and some of our mind and some of our soul and some of our strength. But with all of it. And forgive us God where we've not done that and we've instead done some and we thank you so much for the cross that we are forgiven and because of what Christ has done there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ our sins are gone your righteousness has been given to us and we've made, been made right with you, Father. Not because of anything we've done. But because of what Christ did for us. We praise you and worship you that freedom and forgiveness is ours. Though we do not deserve it. Like John Newton said, Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like 
me. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.